0: This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. For more information, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. In addition to his role as the CEO of UBS Group Americas, Robert Wolfe has been a member of President Obama's Economic Recovery Advisory Board. From both these perspectives, he sees the U.S. economy as being a glass half full rather than half empty. Wolf notes that the stock market is rising again. The U.S. economy has seen several quarters of growth as well as productivity and efficiency gains. Where will the economy go next? What does the future hold for commercial and investment banking? Wolf discussed these questions and more in a recent interview with Knowledge at Wharton.
1: Robert Wolf, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Look forward to it. In addition to being Chairman and CEO of UBS Group Americas, you've also been a member of President Obama's Economic Recovery Advisory Board. From both these perspectives, how do you find a, how, how far do you think the us economy has recovered, and what are some of your biggest fears and concerns for the next eighteen to twenty four months
2: well it's, it's the question everyone's asking, so I, I appreciate you uh, you focusing on really rebounding uh, our country and its economy. I think the best way to look at it is, is the glass is half full. You know, there would be those that would tell you it's half empty. I would tell you we have a ways to go, but we've come a long way. You know, the stock market is up, you know, 60 percent, you know, from the lows. You have unemployment, which is still, you know, hovering around nine and a half, ten percent 10%. But you've had nine straight months of private sector employment growth, which prior to that, you had near two years of private sector uh, employment reductions. So, I think you're, you're seeing some private sector comeback. You have—you've had two years of a lot of productivity and efficiency gains by companies, uh, which has been good to their bottom line, but now you're starting to see slowly hiring again. So the average work week, which was around 32 and a half hours, is now at 33 and a half, which equates to almost 2 million job equivalents being gained. You're starting to see you know, export growth, partly because the dollar's been a bit weaker, but also partly because some of the emerging countries are growing faster than we are and are looking to buy um, our product. So industrial production's doing a little better. The consumer, um, you know, although in more of a savings mode in the past, which I think is good, because, you know, everyone was over-levered. The consumer, the household, the Wall Street firms, you know, everyone was over-levered. But now when we're in an environment where over the last two years, as we've delevered, people are now starting to feel a little more comfortable spending as the consumer, which is... You know, important, I think, for this country, because consumer spending is part of is I think something like seventy percent of our GDP. The one business line that continues, I think, to bring a concern to everyone in our nation is the housing market. We are in a situation where foreclosures remain high. Um, and I think that seems like it's going to stay that way for a while, and new housing's not being built. and so, the construction industry, my guess is still the makes up the highest percent of unemployment
1: some people call it almost a foreclosure crisis. Do you agree with that characterization if so what's your analysis of that situation and where it's going to go
2: meaning that the foreclosure and housing crisis brought us into a recession or do you mean that going our current, forward
1: going forward
2: that we're in a foreclosure crisis I think um, you know, being a Wharton guy, I look at supply and demand economics pretty closely. My guess is there was a period of time we were in an over... it was an overbuilt asset class. We had a lot of people buying first homes that probably weren't ready, and we had a lot of people buying second homes that probably weren't ready. We were giving uh, more leverage than people actually could afford. and you know, for the most part, people were buying a house for 100 cents in the dollar and valuing it at 120 cents in the dollar before they moved in. That type of environment can only last so long. So what took 10 years to build up, unfortunately, seems like it's taken, you know, a year to come back down. Listen, we are still going to have, you know, a housing market that has new construction, and that's going to be important. But certainly it's going to be a very slow period um, to get the housing market back. I think foreclosures are—you know, it makes us all very nervous. I mean, there are some areas of our country that have, you know, the housing somewhere between 30 and 50 percent of all mortgages in, are in foreclosed—in uh, a foreclosed uh, environment. I mean, that's not good for the neighbor who's bought the house. That's good not good for the neighborhood. That's not good for the school system. You know, it's better to have houses where people are living in, and, and, but it's going to take time. And I think as new supply slows down, which it is, you know, and pricing gets repriced so we're at, a, a, you know, a better pricing for new homes and existing homes, then you'll start, people, you'll start seeing people go back into the homes because they can afford it for the right reasons, not because we're being levered, you know, as a country.
1: Turning now to the housing finance market, what do you think is going on with mortgage-backed securities? Um, Are they selling? And if so, who's buying them? So we're getting a little technical now, which is fine. Uh, Listen,
2: in the U.S., for our investors, mortgages is an asset class. It is not an asset class all over the world. It's, for the most part, a very U.S.-centric asset class for our investors. And my guess, it makes up you know, somewhere between 25 plus percent of the asset class. You have people that are in rates product, which is usually governments and mortgages, and you have people which is an equity product, and you have people uh, in credit product. and And that's really the asset class with, you know, now people getting into precious metals and currencies, but that's still a smaller part of asset classes. of our mortgages are backed by GSEs. So we have become a government-run mortgage environment. And I know that the White House, led by the Treasury, are looking at GSE reform as one of their key mandates for 2011. I'm not sure which way it will go. You could see, you know, there's those who argue it should be from the public sector. There's those that argue it should be private. Most agree, it shouldn't be a combination of private and public, which got us in trouble in the first place. But equally, most agree, it's going to be a very difficult and long-term to transition where we are today to bring it to either one or the other. So I think, you know, I'm a public sector guy um, with respect to certain government-run agencies, with respect to the housing market. Okay, I'm a private sector guy. I believe in capital markets and in free markets. And, and my view is, you know, if we can find the appropriate transition, it would be great to move housing back to a private sector mandate. That would be what I think is—I is, don't think it's the government's responsibility to be the financier for the housing. But there'll be, it will not be without a difficult transition.
1: Sure. Uh, you referred earlier to the unemployment rate, and, of course, the biggest concern today is jobs. Uh, to what degree, when you look at the current joblessness situation, do you feel that it's a result of structural factors, meaning those jobs have moved elsewhere and they're never going to come back? And to what extent is it cyclical in the sense it will respond to some stimuli?
2: You know, that's a, this is a great question. It's, it's very timely. Uh, we had our meeting with the president, Um, A few weeks ago, our public meeting for the president's uh, Economic Recovery Advisory Board, which you mentioned earlier, we call it the PRAB, and we spoke about unemployment um, structural, okay, um, versus demand-driven. You know, I think it's both, uh, and I'm not hedging myself. I've been a trader most of my life, so what I, you know, I'm not one that normally hedges on Nancer. I think in some ways there's a mismatch on skilled labor, okay, based on, you know, where we're moving in some ways into green, the green environment and in tech, technology, and, you know, whenever something's relatively new, there's going to be uh, some sort of mismatch in skilled labor. You know, we... we for the most part have been a construction and service led nation for the last you know 20 years it's been you know pretty much barbell uh we have not been a nation that's led you know recently by manufacturing and making things i think today you have so you still have a bit of a a mismatch in some skilled labor which is why Um, The program we announced a few weeks ago, Skills for America's Future, is a great program that's getting private companies to work with education. And I certainly think Arne Duncan's done a great job in his role as uh, chairman of uh, secretary of education. But then there's also the demand side. There is no question that we have a lot of good people in this country ready to work, able to work, talented enough to work, and educated to work, and skilled to work. But we don't have literally the demand because either businesses are still scared that there's a possibility of a double dip, or they're not seeing the top line growth. But either way, you cut it, there. There's this nervousness from what we went by past in the last two years to all of a sudden re up and start hiring quickly again.
1: Are you nervous about a double dip?
2: No, I think that the foundation that the administration has worked over the last year and a half, uh, specifically the work the Federal Reserve has done, and central banks around the world bringing back the capital markets and bringing liquidity back into the banking system. I'm not, I think that that has really allowed us to move forward, which is why I said to me the glass is half full, but it's only half. uh,
1: Looking now to sort of uh, another sort of macroeconomic area, capital controls used to be regarded as the kiss of death for countries. But now that view seems to be changing, they seem to be regarded as a safeguard against destabilizing hot money. Uh, What's your view about this new trend towards capital controls?
2: You know, I'm going to answer it a little differently. I don't think protectionism is good anywhere. I mean, my view is I am a free markets guy. I think the reason our industry works well and why there's an entrepreneurial spirit is there is mobility of capital 24-7 that 's what makes the capital markets go that 's what makes companies able to finance themselves in multi currency so i 'm not one where ring fencing of capital is good anywhere um, you know so from my perspective, although we 're looking for we 're all going to be compliant to the new rules and regulations coming out in all the jur- different jurisdictions, what our hope is is that there 's at least a centralized coordinated effort to make sure that capital continues to be mobile. Um, so it can go to the places where it needs to be you know, most worked.
1: Right. You know, there's been some controversy over the capital standards prescribed by Basel III. Uh, for example, the other day, Vikram Pandit of uh, uh, Citigroup described them as being wildly excessive, uh, while Mervyn King of the Bank of England said that the capital requirements don't go far enough. Where do you think the truth lies?
2: Listen, we're in an industry where um, real capital, i.e. equity, okay, is really going to be more and more important. Um, And I think we're going to be in an industry for the foreseeable future where everyone's going to have a little more of a buffer, a little more liquidity, a little more capital on hand. Certainly, less of a mismatch of their maturities between their assets and the liabilities, and we're going to be more nimble. Uh, we're going to be having a balance sheet that's been delevered over the last two years. Somewhere, my guess is fifty percent as an industry. And so, you know, I'm not. You know, we we still need to see where Basel three comes out and where it all define. You know, where it all gets originally defined. We have rule writing right now in every jurisdiction around the world happening. You know, but certainly, uh, you know, being a firm that's headquartered in Switzerland, we're not surprised um, that Basel III will have you know more capital, and they're looking at you know how do hybrids look and, and how, what's tier one tier one common equity. So there's a lot of you know relatively new terminology contingent capital and all these different ideas that the industry has to take a real look at to make sure that there's a level playing field globally. I think that's the key, is that, that there's no jurisdictional arbitrage. The, the key for us, being you know, one of the dozen global financial services firms there are, is to make sure that we're all being looked upon in a similar way with the similar rules of
1: engagement. I I think that's exactly right. If you look at one of the biggest challenges that the large banks face today, uh, especially after the financial crisis, I would say to some degree it involves reestablishing trust with customers, clients, regulators. Uh, What are some of the concrete steps you think that the large banks can take to do that?
2: Well, one, our business is on a handshake. That hasn't changed. The golden rule is your word, your honor. And so at the end of the day, um, over the last few years, um, our ethics have been challenged uh, by the public, by our shareholders, by our clients, for the right reasons. And we have to make sure that when we sell products, they're the appropriate products. When we service our clients, okay, we're always being— You know, giving our best ideas and with what fits them appropriately. Listen, I I think at the end of the day, we have to kind of go back, look at ourselves in the mirror, and make sure that we're there to service the clients. We have to make sure that we make sure that the public knows we appreciate, okay, for what they've done, okay, with their own hard earned taxpayer money to make sure that this is an industry that survived. and I think we also have to do a better job communicating because we have a lot of great people in this industry that are philanthropic and that you know, understand social responsibility and that are great role models for this country. And we're not looked upon that way. And so we have to do a better job communicating that you know, we are not defined okay by who we work for, but we're defined by how we give back to this country And that, you know, I know everyone says, you know, we're an industry of greed. Well, I don't look at it that way. I think we're an industry of hopefully working hard, being compensated appropriately, and giving back uh, to this country because we're in that ability, we're in an environment that allows us to be more fortunate and we should make sure we give back. And I know that sounds a lot like apple pie, but that's okay. We have to start sounding a little more like apple pie.
1: Well, you've played certainly a a leadership role in building the wealth management uh, uh, activities of UBS. Uh, Given today's financial and uh, political uh, situation, what advice would you give people who don't want their assets to lose any more value than they might have already?
2: Well, you only should take risks that align with your appetite (laughs) of what you you can uh, afford to either lose or gain. We call them prudent risks. Um, We're fortunate under um, our wealth management umbrella to have a smart group of financial advisors who educate themselves. And we have a management team who want to make sure that we're selling product that makes sense for the client. That doesn't mean we're not entrepreneurial and we have ingenuity. Of course, we also design products. you know, if someone wants an asset allocation that includes a little more inflation-type product, whether it's gold or precious metals or different types of currencies, then we should make sure that we give them that ability to buy that product, but also make sure we explain to them what the product is and what the risks are. And I think that, you know, returns are going to be probably a little less for the foreseeable future because people are going to be apt to take more, less risks. Um there's a there's a nervousness about the volatility in the markets. And when you go to an environment where the markets go from north of 10,000 to 6500 then back to north of 10,000, a lot of people rather have slow, steady returns than choppy markets all over the place. So I, I do think that you know we're fortunate to have a group of advisors, that continually educate themselves on on product innovation and new ideas but it's always with the idea of making sure it fits the client's desires
1: right i'd like to and wind up with a couple of questions about your personal leadership journey you know do, during your career at ubs and before that at salomon brothers what is the toughest leadership challenge you have faced how did you deal with it and what did you learn from it
2: you know i think the toughest leadership is finding a work-life balance um that you know like i said before you know i don't believe ubs defines me i believe you know being a, a grad of wharton and being a, a student athlete at the school and playing penn football and being a father of two great children and being an advisor to the president and working for a great firm like ubs these are things that define me but it's very important to find that work life balance. We get all caught up in what's just a job. And it can take over your life and sometimes and actually the last two and a half years have made me realize, you know, that at times it's just a job. And the house is bigger than the man. So you can only impact it to a point. And you gotta also make sure that you have the time for the things that are with you your whole life, you know like your school and like your family and for me it has also been my relationship obviously with the president but I think you gotta find other passions and that allows you I think to enjoy work even when it's not going great because you have those other things that, aren't go- that are going great and so I think work-life balance for me has been the key to being a leader because if you're happy you actually lead well. None of us are good actors.
1: <laughs> that's true. I, I had thought that uh, in response to this question, you would have spoken about some of the, the the controversy with the IRS and how you dealt with that dealt with that situation. Any lessons to be learned from that? We're it's glad it's
2: behind us. <laughs> right. We're glad we're
1: moving forward. Great One last question. Uh, how do you define success?
2: You know, for me, success is defined. But I think first how I work with my family and my wife, taking care of my kids. Do I like the way we're raising them? Are they respectful? How I respect my parents and and, and the relationships we have with our family. Uh, you know, success for me is not monetary. It's how I'm viewed in the community. I love that they call me coach. They don't know that I'm the UBS CEO. They know me as coach as I drive down in my Murano with the dents in the car. You know. I think at the end of the day, I was giving a a lecture uh, today to some Wharton students. You have to know your roots. And if you know your roots, then you always know that you have a great foundation to to go back on. And I, I think I've been fortunate to have a great family foundation, to have a great school foundation. I love coming back to Penn. And I love my years at Wharton. And I think it differentiates me because I'm able to say that I'm a student athlete at one of the best schools in the world. And uh, so I think it it all goes to the foundation. When I was in high school, I gave a speech called the Pyramid of Life. Mm -hmm. And it still stands today. You have the foundation of the family and education and then work. But at the end of the day, it's still the foundation.
1: Well, thank you so much for speaking with us
2: today. Well, thank you. It's been an honor.
0: For more business news and analysis from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.